News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn here with Professor Christina Greer, also in Brooklyn. Hello. Hi there, reporting today, though, from my office in Manhattan. Ah, hello, hello. And Katie Honan of The City, who I think is in Queens. I am. I am in Queens. I am at home right now. Represent. We're we're the Triborough right here. (laughs) We're the Triborough Bridge. Oh, no, the Bronx. (laughs) Never mind. We're, we're three boroughs, and it's the it's the RFK Bridge now, which is its own outrage. I refuse. I refuse. I refuse. I refuse. Try, bro. So in a bit, uh, Katie, uh, Alex Lynn, and I will have a conversation you'll hear with Julia McDonald Nieto del Rio, uh, who's uh, reporting for Documented uh, about immigration enforcement. But before we get to that, let's just talk about another busy, interesting week in New York. Uh, we've got long time. Friend of FAQ uh, and pod, pod guest uh, Jumani Williams is indeed running for governor. It's getting crowded and interesting, which maybe is helpful to uh, you know incumbent Kathy Hochul. Uh, we have the city council speakers race and the New York Post reporting that Eric Adams would like anybody except uh, Carolina Rivera. Uh, Eric Adams showing up on the uh, late night shows to say he's going to be a, a nightlife mayor. Um, and enjoying it himself, and uh, lots more, lots more cooking. Um, Katie, what have you been locked into this week? Maybe let's start just for a minute with the uh, with the council speaker race, um, since since that's some inside baseball stuff that will have some real impact on, on how the city is going to run over these next four years. Yeah, you know the speaker race is heating up, as journalists use phrases like heating up <laughs> that we would not say in real life. Um, you know, I was in Somos, I guess, two weeks ago now, and it was really on display there. Uh, most of the speaker candidates had receptions and little gatherings, of course, under the uh, guise of this is a reception for new council members. But it was really, of course, it was like, we want you to know who we are and, and kind of show that. Um, I think the biggest issue from two weeks ago was Justin Brandon, who was who a leading contender. He had not yet officially won his race. He won that this week on paper ballots and absentee ballots. Uh, you know, one thing I noticed in this whirlwind of the three days that I spent down there for Somos was the, the clamoring of these candidates wanting to be seen with Eric Adams. And we saw that, you know, uh, Julia Marsh for the Post wrote this week uh, that behind the scenes, Eric Adams, members of Eric Adams' team has been campaigning against one candidate in particular, Carlina Rivera of Manhattan, um, I guess over her vote for, against the budget last year. Uh, and her support of defunding the police or, or whatever version of support. Um, I just saw Sally Goldenberg of Politico, I guess, got Eric on the record about that. He said it wasn't him. It was people from within his camp. But, you know, I guess he's still saying he's not getting too involved. But it's it's very interesting. And to explain it, I'm, I'm moderating a speaker forum this evening with New Yorkers for Parks and other organizations. You know, tr- it is I've described it as a student council election with consequences because it's a very important election for New York City residents, but we don't have a say in it. You know, it's the 51 member body that will vote on this. Um, so explaining it to people who, you know, have lives and aren't, <laughs> and aren't you know, obsessed with this, it's, it's trying to explain, look, this is a person who will lead the council, who will set the tone for the council, determine what bills can get voted on and passed and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, that is that speculation. You know, and every week I hear someone's up one week 
And then the next week it's someone else's up. Even during SOMAS, there were there were people who aren't even considered leading candidates who are suddenly, did you hear about this person's trying to make a play? So that's that's that. You know, I've been working on a few other stuff too, but that is maybe the juiciest. Um, just thinking about that. They'll vote on it in January, but you know, usually gets decided over the next few weeks. And it's only for two years because whatever we're doing the redistricting. That was another thing. So very quickly, can you can you explain that to our listeners? Because it is it is a little boggling that we have uh, we have term limits now, and we usually have four year terms. But then when you have redistricting, there's two year terms. Like like what is this? Yeah, it's because of redistricting. You know, we will have potentially different district seats and different council district seats among other seats. I've said seats twelve times now, but that is what. Uh, that's what what happens and it's only for two years. So we'll have another election. If if this year was not enough, we will have it all over again in, in two years. Um, so then, you know, who knows, whoever, maybe someone who's speaker won't win their, whatever will happen. We could speculate on that, but it is, it is a two year thing. Um, and that's that. Uh, but yeah, explaining is someone is that a speaker candidate on the, on the phone now, Harry, who, who's my, calling my, you? My, my father who has a, uncanny knack for calling when I'm recording. <laughs> my dad literally every single time, right when I'm about to do something, it's like, I see my dad's call. Chrissy, what is your dad doing in terms of smoking meats for uh, Thanksgiving? <laughs> yeah, that's more important. I want to hear about that. Right. You know, I've never had an oven turkey for Thanksgiving. So, and we've always lived on the Northeast. So my dad like puts on his corduroys and his, now he has like a Columbia jumper that I got him a long time ago and goes out at, you know, six in the morning and starts to slow smoke the turkey. So he'll be wow. doing that and bringing it up to New York city along with some salmon and some lamb roast and some lamb lollipops and some sausage. Just like in the back of the car, like a bunch of meats. And, yeah. And just bringing the meats up Jersey Turnpike. Wow. <laughs> yes. You can swing by. So speaking speaking of that smooth transition time, is <laughs> Andrew Cuomo going to run for attorney general? Like, what the hell is that? Sit down, sit down, Andrew Cuomo. Like, you know, I heard that that little buzz, too. I mean, I think that that's going to be a really interesting race to watch. I think right now the the attention is on Kathy Hochul, Tish James, Giovanni Williams, possibly Bill de Blasio, possibly Tom Swazi, possibly some other randos from, you know, upstate New York slash Long Island. But I do think that the uh, the AG's race is one to watch. You know, you've got Zephyr Teachout who'll be running again for the AG seat. You know, a lot of people say that it's a good fit for her. We've got Eric Gonzalez. A lot of folks say that that seat's a great fit for him. Also, we have zero Latinx representation on the citywide level, uh, you know, uh, the city level and also the state level. Um, so that could bode well for various coalitions being formed, not just in Brooklyn, but, you know, Black and Latinx alliances to make sure that we have larger Latinx representation in uh, citywide and or statewide offices. And then you've got, you know, just a host of other folks, various lawyers, former, you know, DAs from miscellaneous places. I mean, I think Andrew Cuomo really needs to do some some quiet time, some like some quiet reflection, because he clearly is still on some, you know, if you were offended, I'm sorry, you feel offended. And he hasn't thought about, you know, the the myriad of accusations ranging. And they range, you know, like some I think are, are less egregious than others, but they're still part of a long litany of bad behavior. And I don't think he's taking the time to, to really think about why it is he had to resign. 
uh, why it is that he's, you know, the third in a long line of Democratic leaders on the state level, Spitzer and then Schneiderman and then Cuomo, all Democrats who've had to sit down because of some sort of sexual misconduct. Um, and he doesn't see that larger narrative and how he played uh, a role in it. So we also can't be naive to think that there aren't a lot of, you know, there's there's still quite a few people who support Andrew Cuomo, who think he was railroaded, yeah. who want to see him make a comeback. A lot of folks still love his dad. So, you know, they sort of feel protective of him as little Andrew because he's been in Albany since he was 19 years old. So we can't say that this is a total joke uh, campaign if he decides to run. So what, what's cracking me up right now is that uh, Jay Cope, uh, the state's sort of ridiculous, rather corrupt ethics board uh, that, that has signed off on his $5 million, we eventually found out, book deal, um, and then and then held with that sign off several times. That's now being investigated uh, by the state legislature and a report that should be coming out shortly uh, by, by, by the feds and by others. But they finally got around to uh, to taking that back. Uh, because they said, um, you know, he had, he had he misrepresented having government staffers volunteer, I'm doing air quotes, uh, to work on the book. So Cuomo has a spokesperson still uh, as the uh, former governor. Uh, he also has, I think, $21 million, or it might be $18 million in his campaign account, um, who's still there, rich as a party. Who says, you know, uh, this shows that that, that, that that these people are political hacks who are just doing what they were appointed to do, which is the ultimate in a pot kettle projection, given how uh, how Jacob has worked. Um, but it's interesting in that the way this worked, you talked about Spitzer, right? It, and Schneiderman is that you resign, you step away from politics, you don't get criminal charges and all these investigations sort of get dropped. And with Cuomo very much not resigning, um, suggesting he's going to stir things up if he can in the governor's race, that, that he's very upset with, with Tish James, you know, whose office put out the uh, the report that forced his resignation that he nominally asked for, um, that you can see how uh, the, 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 the government mechanisms that he used to control that can get used to squeeze people are still squeezing him and trying to push him out. And like, what a game of, of chicken this is. Oh, you know, you're going to keep showing up. Well, well, actually, you have to give back that $5 million, uh, some of which he already put into a trust for his daughter, some of which he may have already spent, uh, none of which he, he certainly is intending to, to give back. Uh, so I'm worried that, that rather than stepping back, he's going to be a very big presence, whether he runs or not throughout this cycle. And particularly if you have a crowded field of Democrats, even if he's not a candidate, that the, the, the potentially this changes the uh, the tenor of the uh, of the primary, at least in that race. Um, and if the primary now is where most things get decided in New York, which, which I suspect will be the case in the governor's race. I don't know, but like having the angry ghost of uh, Andrew Cuomo floating around seems like a, a really strange, intriguing dynamic, let alone if his, uh, you know, longtime frenemy Bill de Blasio insanely decides to run as well, which he seems to be itching to do. I think I, speaking of Bill de Blasio, nothing we want to talk about him, but uh, my colleague Sam Maldonado last week tweeted, I guess it was like a survey that the Bill de Blasio dot com campaign was sending out of mm, how I they think it. he did. I mean. Did you see some of the stuff? It was pretty funny. One of them was, how do you think he did on climate change? And I know that's that, that's me being um, 
pedantic because they probably bet on fighting climate change. But some <laughs> of the stuff on that list thrive. You know, these are things that I thought were third rail items that he wouldn't want to mention, but he did. Well, I don't know, Katie. Climate change because he wasn't fighting climate change because he took a car everywhere when he could have taken the subway. So maybe how do you feel that he has contributed to climate change because he consistently had his entourage in their vehicles when he very easily could have walked or used another mode of transportation. I think my bigger thing is this, because you know Long Island much better than I do in a lot of ways, just because I know nothing about Long Island. I don't see any path for Bill de Blasio, you know, yes, he still has strong black support, but I think that goes away with Tish James and Jumani Williams and even Kathy Hochul being in the race. When I was in Long Island all summer, these are white people who were like, you know, I miss David Dinkins. I'm like, whoa, we have clearly taken a turn. If you're talking about the great late David Dinkins in comparison to how much you hate Bill de Blasio, and these are people who despise David Dinkins and they don't vote in New York. They don't have anything to do with New York, but they, they despise Bill de Blasio in a way that is almost intangible. And then I just don't see sort of any upstate support and upstate foundation that he's built over the last roughly eight years. So who is his base and where's he getting his money from? Because when he ran for the presidency, I could see where he would have a donor base because you have something to trade as far as business in New York City. But when you're no longer the mayor, what do you what's your chip? What are you giving the donors? Yeah, I don't think he has much. And I mean, maybe he'll see that in, in, in efforts to fundraise. He won't be successful. And who knows if he'll jump in? I mean, these are all they're all exploratory committees. Jamani's was an exploratory thing until uh, I guess he saw it fit to, to jump in. But yeah, we will see how things shake out. Uh, it should be fun. Everything is fun. Everyone. This is all all of this stuff is fun. It sounds like you're trying to convince yourself, Katie. <laughs> no, you know, I try you said, to stay it positive. Be fun. It's fun. <laughs> We're it's fine. called, I call it the positivity shield. Just, you know, every day mm-hmm. above ground is a blessing. Whoever's running mm-hmm. for office, whatever's happening, just like keep the yeah, light. And kudos fun. to the public servants, right? I mean, everyone need... wants to give back. Right. Right. So speaking of Long Island and various other things, we didn't spend a lot of time on this podcast on the uh, ballot measures Mm. and the ones that surprisingly to a lot of people, myself included went down. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so three and four, which were going to make voting easier in New York, right? So you could uh, register same day. So you could have no questions asked mail-in voting both went down. I was just upstate and I saw this is after the election, all these signs vote no on one, three and four. One was a little more complicated because it combined some like basic, like hygienic good government stuff with a, a like, let's redo redistricting. So it's not nonpartisan, which, which has complicated national overlay. But in any case, all three of these things went down. Uh, Democrats got crushed in Long Island uh, sort of across the board in this, this wave election that like Justin Brandon, who we mentioned, you know, barely survived. Thank, thanks to, to the write-ins. Uh, Jay Jacobs, who's a Cuomo guy, used to be a Swazi guy, by the way. Um, is the head of the Democratic Party in New York, you know, and is a Long Island guy, but like, you know, various people he was around got crushed. At the same time, in Buffalo, he went with the uh, with, with the incumbent mayor who lost his primary and then like had a writing campaign and, and won. Um, Zellner Myrie is now another good podcast guest. Uh, hello. 
um, you know, has been raising the alarm about voting stuff, but I, I don't think he was really banging the drum for the, the these ballot measures. Like, what just happened? And are Democrats in New York getting lazy in a certain sense uh, because there's not really a Republican opposition? And we sort of seen possibly a peak of Democratic power in which which the idea, hey, we just have the votes. We don't really have to do uh, campaigning or electioneering, just, just hit its limits. Um, additionally, we're going to have as many Republican city council members, as, which is not many, but uh, as, as many as I can recall, you know, going back at least a, a couple decades. Um, and, you know, Chrissy, you talk a lot about how New York is not a totally blue state. Like, like have we hit some, some outer limit here of uh, what Democrats naturally control? Yeah, I mean, I just think that we have a lot of different shades of blue in the state of New York, and we still have a very significant Republican population. So during presidential election years, yes, we're solidly Democratic, big D Democratic. We can count on New York delivering by and large for the Democratic nominee. But, you know, we can't just erase away the three terms of Governor Pataki, who's a Republican. Uh, We can't, you know, ignore the numbers of, you know, the (laughs) <laughs> the trifling Republican candidates we've had still got significant, you know, still had a third, at least a third of New Yorkers voting for them. And I think it's really important that if we have these measures that are important, we still have to campaign for them. Because I think sometimes we can get into our five borough uh, bubble and forget that, you know, I voted yes on one precisely because it had something to do with prisons. Uh, but had we been really thinking about this is a ballot measure that's on on everyone's ballot across New York State, you know that a lot of people voted no on one precisely because there was a, a prison measure woven into that that hodgepodge kitchen sink uh, of issues on on measure number one. Real, real quick, that would be that uh, prisoners would get counted for census purposes from where they actually lived as opposed to where they were imprisoned. Right. And so for upstate, where, where prisons are a big economic issue and like with prisons are closing, Kathy Hochul just announced that several are right. It, it's like you actually had the head of the union say this isn't just about uh, uh, the tax base or things like that. This really impacts communities. And incredibly, he meant uh, we're going to lose jobs upstate. Exactly. And of course, the communities that really get devastated are the ones that, that, that have people locked up and have those votes taken away from them. So they get counted, even though those people who are locked up, incarcerated, generally don't have their own vote. Uh, but for re, uh, you know redistricting purposes, they get counted for upstate. So 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 that that was part of one. And it's an entire ecosystem, right? And so you know you take away those prisoners, then also you're taking away representation of, of folks who who are used to counting black and Latinx bodies from the five boroughs into their population. Which you know I obviously think that incarcerated individuals should be counted from the the home from which they were taken and not where they're they're not going to school, they're not using the roads, they're not uh, using any of the resources, um, they're not voting in those districts. But so I think for people who wanted those measures to pass, uh, I think it could have been much more of an effort because I didn't really get lobbied at all about these ballot measures. And I think that folks upstate were definitely lobbied uh, to think very specifically about what was going to be on the ballot. I think we got sort of distracted by, you know, sort of the mayor's race. But, you know, when we ask people to flip over the ballot, there has to be a level of education that goes along with that. Uh, and I think a lot of people just, you know, the data shows, yes, people are inclined to vote. Yes. And so there's an assumption that these ballot measures will pass. But we also know uh, that with a bit of education, 
uh, especially from organizations that have been mobilized, if you're told to vote no, then a lot of folks will vote no. And I mean, and they they failed. I mean, it's not like, oh, it was a squeaker. It's like, no, 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 they absolutely failed. Yeah, and, and I think if you'd had a just, you have to flip over the ballot, it's really important. Mm-hmm. And then particularly because the language was totally incoherent. Like if you read these and you had any idea what you were voting for or against just on the basis of the language there, you're a lot smarter than me because it, it's, it's impenetrable. Right. So you have to flip this over, vote yes on one to four. If that had been part of the, the, the messaging of, for instance, each of the mayoral candidates, uh, the other people running for, for citywide and boroughwide offices, you know, and, and there'd been a push from, from other organizations, I think that could have made a big difference. But in any case, I think that's a good transition uh, into this conversation uh, with Julia uh, McDonald Nieto del Rio of documented uh, where we're going to be talking about uh, about prison populations and unintended consequences. Let's jump right in. So we're here with uh, Julia McDonald Nieto del Rio, who's a Report for America Corps member covering immigration enforcement for documented, uh, the nonprofit news site dedicated to original reporting on New York's immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. Uh, that you can find at documentedny.com. And among other things, uh, Julia, you've been reporting a lot about uh, about ICE spreading the, uh, detainees out around the country, um, including those who had been held in New Jersey, and as New Jersey's become the first East Coast state to, uh, to, to ban any further ICE contracts. And, and this seems to be having some, uh, some fallout effects for people who had been detained there. And I'm hoping you can fill our listeners in on that reporting. And then uh, uh, we'll, uh, it's myself, Katie Honan and Alex Lynn here. We may pepper you with some questions. Great. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Harry. Yes. So um, New Jersey has become the first East Coast state to ban further ICE contracts. Um, and so what that means um, for some of the detained immigrants that were held in Um, these uh, New Jersey County jails, um, which now have no more detained immigrants at their facilities, um, is that recently many have been sent to some facilities in New York, um, which includes the Buffalo Service Processing Center in Batavia, New York, near Buffalo, and the Orange County Correctional Facility um, outside of New York City. Um, But this is actually, um, you know, They're further from their families and legal teams now. Um, It's harder for them to get access to legal help. um, And it's harder for people to visit them, of course, especially in Buffalo, which is, um, you know, about 350 miles away from uh, the New Jersey facilities that they were being held in. Um, So so there are kind of some unfortunate um, effects for a lot of these detained immigrants um, that they're facing. from from a lot of these transfers that are happening. Um, And for uh, the immigrants at the Hudson County Jail in New Jersey, um, advocates and attorneys had been submitting release requests for their clients to be released instead of detained. ICE has had denied the majority of these release requests, so instead transferred the majority of these immigrants to um, the New York facilities. And is, is there a hope that ICE may end up, uh, I, I know they say that they're looking at this on a case-by-case basis. Is uh, is there any 
expectation or hope at this point uh, that that ICE may end up uh, releasing some of these detainees in, in the course of shifting things around, or is that ship more or less sailed without without that happening? So yeah, ICE has a lot of discretion um, of who they release and who they decide not to release. Um, recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, advocates told me that about four. Um, detained immigrants were released from the Bergen County Jail in New Jersey, um, which uh, is is a significant amount, but still more were transferred than released. So um, it's kind of hard to tell uh, sometimes who ICE will release and who they will not release. In most cases, um, they have uh, been transferring people and deportation is also something that has been happening when uh, these contracts are ending and these um, county facilities are saying that they will no longer hold detained immigrants. Um, so transfers has been the main thing. Um, some releases have been happening. Um, it's just been kind of unclear to advocates um, when, when the, who is going to be released and who is not going to be released. And has the shift of a lot of the, the administrative court system onto Zoom over the course of the pandemic sort of helped ICE in allowing them to transfer people hundreds of miles away since not everyone is showing up physically to court dates? Um, have, have those dynamics shifted over the course of the pandemic? I'm not sure if they've had a uh, huge shift because a lot of the detained immigrants were already showing up to court through video conferences since they were um, detained um, at the time. Um, However, uh, because the backlog of cases um, has grown during the pandemic, um, that could mean that people could be uh, detained for longer as they wait for um, both their criminal cases and immigration cases to be resolved. Um, so a lot of these folks who are in immigration detention, um, especially who are held in New Jersey facilities, they had sometimes pending criminal charges um, uh, or they had already served their time um, in jail for uh, the for convictions. Um, so uh, what some folks are facing now is potentially longer wait times in detention um, because there is a, a backlog of both immigration um, and and longer wait times for for criminal trials as well. If they're being transferred to New York State. Um, what are some of the time limits, if any, and do you know of any considerations being made to maybe ending the contract with ICE in New York State? Um, you know, we've got a, you know, everyone's gearing up to start campaigning for governorships. So what is the landscape in regard to that and our contracts with ICE, our being New York? Yeah, so there is a uh, bill that was um, introduced uh, recently um, in the New York State um, Assembly, uh, in the legislator, um, called the Dignity Not Detention Act. So this bill, um, which is in committee right now, um, would effectively end all ICE contracts in New York State. Um, and that would mean ending current contracts um, and any future or new contracts that could come up that would be banned. Um, but uh, the bill has only been uh, introduced so far, so so it hasn't gotten very um, far yet. But if that Dignity Not Detention Act were to pass, um, it would be a similar uh, situation than what we're seeing now in New Jersey. 
um, where, uh, you know, no future uh, ICE contracts will be allowed in the state. Um, so New Jersey could be in some ways a foreshadowing of, of what's to come in New York if that bill does make it through. Um, but for now, it's it's unclear how long um, folks in detention uh, in New York state will have to stay in their facilities. Um, there's, it's again, very much up to the discretion of ICE, how long people are kept in detention and what the next moves are. Julia, you had written in October about the backlog uh, in immigration court. Uh, if you want to talk a little bit about that, I see when you reported it, it was uh, one point, uh, hold on, now I have to make sure that I have it correctly. Uh, the backlog of 1.4 million pending cases, such a large number, I, I doubted myself there. But just talk about, I guess, how COVID has affected the immigration court and the, and the effect that it has on those awaiting a hearing and, and what it could mean for them. Yeah, so the immigration uh, backlog, as you said, um, is huge right now. So that has I've I've spoken to folks, especially a lot of these cases are asylum cases in New York City courts, especially. Um, they've been waiting years, uh, you know, three years plus some people um, for their cases uh, to be heard. And basically, what this means is that um, often these people are in limbo. Um, if they want to bring family members um, from their home countries, they're separated for longer. Um, they're, they uh, have very tenuous legal status in the meantime, um, and they're not sure when they'll be able, if they'll be able to go back home, if then if they'll be still sent back home, um, if they'll ever, some people have kids that um, if they are, if they win their immigration case for asylum, they would sometimes be able to bring their kids to the country. In the meantime, while they wait for their case, um, they're separated from their children. Um, so since immigration courts were closed uh, for such a long time during the pandemic, this has really pushed back so, so many cases. Um, and a lot of people are waiting in limbo. Um, now what's happening is that the courts are, are trying to kind of get back on track and get through these cases quicker. But um, the notices that are being sent out to reschedule these cases um, are a bit chaotic. So some people are having cases mm -hmm. that were scheduled for next year suddenly being like pushed up to a month from now um, or uh, the other way um, around that people who had cases scheduled, they're being canceled again suddenly with not uh, adequate notice. Some people have not been getting the paper notices to their addresses, so they're not sure when their immigration case might be. Um, lawyers are on top of that, but if someone doesn't have representation, it can be very hard for them to figure out when their next court date is. So it's all a bit uh, chaotic, definitely, because of, of the pandemic and the backlog has caused a lot of issues. And, and I mean, that backlog, is that is that's what's kind of causing the paperwork not getting sent out, or is it just a staffing issue as well? Or what do the courts attribute to, to a lot of this chaos? Yeah. And so I think from what I've heard from uh, immigration lawyers is that um, there may not be uh, enough uh, people really um, working uh, to to send this paperwork out because it's a tough task, right? You have to uh, constantly be sending notices to a lot of a lot of folks who who have their dates coming up. So yes, it can be a staffing issue, um, just the sheer amount of cases um, and scheduling that the courts are trying to figure out um, is. A massive endeavor that um, it, it right now is definitely a bit all over the place. And has has that improved at all uh, on on Biden's watch, 
or is that more or less remain the uh, the, the same? And it's, it's sort of a weird administrative system in that you have judges who aren't actually part of the uh, judiciary, but are part of the executive branch, right, and, and report to the uh, DOJ. Yeah, I think, um, you know, some of the uh, enforcement priorities, um, I think the courts in New York have been, they're rescheduling some of these cases sooner because they are trying to speed the process up. So this is something that's happening, that they're recognizing for sure that this needs to get done. And and these folks who have been waiting for years cannot be uh, in limbo anymore. But um, I think, uh, you know, there have been more uh, immigration judges being hired. Um, People are recognizing, the system is recognizing that this needs to get sped up. But um, there just may not be enough staffing right now or um, enough infrastructure to speed it up in a way that um, makes sense. And that a lot of attorneys are saying that these lack of notices is not giving, they're not giving the clients due process. Um, Their clients should be able to um, know exactly when their cases are being heard. They have to be in court. Um, And so while the courts uh, under Biden are definitely trying to speed up this backlog and get rid of some of this backlog, I think the infrastructure um, may not be quite there enough for for uh, uh, this to happen um, as seamlessly as maybe it, it it should be, as is usually the case. I, but specifically in Orange County and in Buffalo, uh, do you know of any d- judges or more staffing um, kind of being hired uh, for the influx from New Jersey? Yeah, that's a good question um, and something we definitely uh, is worth looking into. I'm not totally sure if there is uh, more staffing um, in their areas. I know in, in New York City, um, so a few more judges have been hired for sure, um, but I'm not totally uh, sure about the, the uh, case more upstate. And ha- But none of the New Jersey detainees have been transferred to New York City as far as you know, right? Um, so or have some. I don't believe there's no there's no um, detention facilities like in New York City. So right now, according to uh, Track, which is the uh, transactional um, records access clearinghouse at Syracuse University, um, there are four detention facilities in New York State currently holding immigrants. Um, and so uh, the uh, biggest um, detention facility is the. Uh, Buffalo Service uh, Processing Center. Um, And they've had about uh, 400 people on average detained throughout October there. Um, And that's the the largest facility currently in New York State. And then the Orange County facility has had about 79 people detained on average there throughout October, according to track. Um, And then there are two other smaller facilities that that have had a uh, smaller number of people detained last month. So so track is a pretty incredible thing in that it's right up there with the uh, federal government not knowing how many people police officers kill in a given year in terms of really basic information that the feds have more or less chosen not to track for themselves. So we need these outside uh, counters to to assemble that information it's a it's it's a sort of remarkable and purposeful hole in our infrastructure uh katie i think you had a a closing question and julia thank thank you again for taking the time and coming on i hope you'll come back because there's so much to discuss here and and we'll keep reading your uh your reporting
Thank you so much for having me. Especially as the gubernatorial race uh, heats up. <laughs> yeah, Julia, I wanted, I guess, speaking of a, another more recent race, um, you've written about what Mayor-elect Eric Adams, what it means when he says he supports a sanctuary city and removing ICE from police activities. But if you could speak a little bit more about what he's signaled the New York City's, uh, New York City will be like as with him as a mayor with so many immigrants here in the United, uh, in the city. Well, this is the United States, I mean, New York City. Uh, just talk a little bit about what we can expect with Mayor Adams uh, in charge. Sure. Um, so Mayor Adams has uh historically been very supportive of, of policies that affect immigrant communities. Um, one of the biggest things that advocates have been very happy about, uh, immigration advocates have been happy that he has support is, supported is the Our City, Our Vote legislation, mm-hmm. um, which would um, give uh, legal permanent residents basically the ability to vote um, in local elections in New York City. Um, and so uh, that's one big thing that uh, Mayor-elect Adams has um, wholeheartedly multiple times said uh, he would support. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he's been a, a supporter of keeping New York City as a sanctuary city. Of um, He's uh, historically uh, been outspoken against um, um, and the NYPD uh, collaborating um, or sharing any data that could lead to the potential um, arrests of undocumented immigrants in New York City. Um, and so... Uh, I wrote a little bit about, of course, he is, uh, he has been um, supportive of the NYPD in general and has uh, talked about, um, you know, having a more uh, visible, different mm-hmm. uh, police presence in the city. Um, so, so I guess it's, we're going to see what, what that means, because of course, as advocates say, um, more policing or more visible police presence is always intertwined for immigrants uh, with the immigration legal system. Any, um, even a small stop or a, a minor um, uh, arrest or um, any really minor interaction with uh, law enforcement for undocumented immigrants or immigrants in general um, can can have devastating consequences. So um, while, of course, Mayor Adams has been very supportive uh, out outspoken about his support for immigrant communities, um, which just kind of remains to be seen what what his um, stance on on policing and the NYPD will mean for immigrants. But immigrant advocates uh, seem to have a uh, very positive um, hope for the city for for immigrants um, under his leadership. So thank you. Yeah, thank you again. And uh, uh, appreciate your reporting. Appreciate you. And uh, please, please join us again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good one. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brookhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. A special thank you to our guest this week, Julia McDonald Nieto Del Rio of Documented. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be well, wear a mask, get a flu shot, and we'll see you next week. You got a newspapers.com subscription, right? Of course. Oh, my I God. Gonna, that's, that's I, the, I actually got made. Oh, it's the best. Oh. I was drunk talking about it at a dinner once, and I feel like my friends were like rolling their eyes. I'm like, on my newspapers.com subscription. <laughs>
It's great, but you can't fuck it up because because like everyone who knows already knows. So Chrissy, newspaper.com. It's great. I'll lend you my login, right? You can just go and like dig through like like 1968 news or whatever random story and see the actual physical papers. So it's really annoying. The search function doesn't work perfectly. It's got all sorts of flaws, but like it's like microfiche, but instant for everything. And it's just insanely, insanely valuable. Oh wow! And at this point, it's actually free with your New York Public Library card. But like, oh, well, I have that. Yeah, so so you can log on with your New York Public Library card to newspapers.com. God bless NYPL for that. Um, and it is just it, it it is so rich and useful. It does not have the New York Post, sadly. Um, no, there was I'm this fine. incredible site, Fulton <laughs> History, that secretly oh, had I love the, the Fulton full, History. It's it, it's down again though, right? Oh, is it? I haven't checked in a while. I mean, yeah, the thing yeah. with that's weird about newspapers.com is. There's some stuff that I get confused by and and like some they ha- they're like missing some months. And the weirdest thing, and I, I only was recently looking, I was looking it up all the stuff about when James Davis was killed. And for some reason, the version of the daily news on newspapers.com, this is like such a niche thing. Sorry, Adam. Yeah, yeah. The next day it wasn't on the cover. And I was like, did they have only like an early edition? Because why would this not have been on the cover? Well, for better and worse, one of the things with newspapers.com and the daily news, let's get real niche, is that they have every fucking edition of the oh, news. Yeah. So there's like for every day you search, you get the same story nine times because it's like, you know, the the, the morning yeah. one star edition and like the early sports edition and so on. And so sometimes it's really valuable because you can see like little changes in stories and like attribution shifting. But all, other times it's like, fuck. You know, I have to like check these 13 clips of the same damn story. I love it. I found my the birth announcement for my aunt in the Brooklyn mm-hmm. Daily Eagle, 1949. Mm-hmm. My dad, although we have the original, my dad was voted best camper at Camp Malloy in Mattatuck. And he's like <laughs> nine years old because they have the tablet. So it's him, you know, so it's very cute. 